Hello, it's Wednesday. I'm your host, Greg Margolis, and welcome to another episode of the Patterns of Play podcast. Hello, and welcome to another interview episode of the Patterns of Play podcast. This week's episode was with Dr. Ben Ruder, who is a exercise physiologist and a certified athletic trainer, a certified strength and conditioning coach, and is currently teaching at California University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we had a really incredible talk about overall wellness, the importance of movement, and how soccer athletes can really be training to their peak performance, uh, and you'll get to the the crux of this pretty quickly, that it kind of depends on the individual, uh, but we do talk a lot about a lot, we talk about a lot of different ways to go about this training model, uh, and it was just a really incredible conversation with him, uh, and also really looked into ways to stay uh, motivated, to stay active during uh, these crazy times where we're stuck at home for an extended period of time. One thing I want to mention before we get right into this interview is the idea of HRV that he speaks about on a, on multiple occasions. Uh, this is the heart rate variability within an individual. It is the beat-to-beat changing of your heart rate, uh, so you don't actually beat you know at the same cadence every single time. There's going to be a little bit of a variation in your heart rate from a beat-to-beat moment, uh, and it's really important because if you can increase your variability to its, you know, its peak and its valley, uh, if you think about when you inhale, your heart rate increases, when you exhale, your heart rate decreases, if you can improve that distance between its peak and its valley at its, you know, its fastest beat cadence and at its slowest, slowest beat cadence, uh, you're actually going to see a lot of benefits from just overall wellness to better attentional focus to better recovery ability uh, post-training. Uh, there's a lot of research out there to uh, back up the importance of a high heart rate variability. Uh, so he talks about the how it's applied in some of the pieces that he is discussing when he's tracking uh, player performance and then just in general. Uh, so I wanted to mention what HRV was before we dive into that. Um, and then uh, just provide you again another opportunity to uh, follow us on Twitter now with a specific Twitter account for the podcast, which is at Patterns Play Pod. Uh, and again, if you have been enjoying what you've been listening to, very much appreciate uh, a rating on Apple Podcasts at your convenience when you have the time. It's always helpful for the podcast. But we will dive right into this with Dr. Ben Ruder. Hello and welcome to another interview episode of the Patterns of Play podcast. I'm your host, Greg Margolis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Ruder, who basically has all of the credentials you can possibly have in the exercise field. Uh, his PhD is in exercise physiology. He is a certified athletic trainer and has a certification as a strength and conditioning coach which he achieved with distinction. Currently a professor at California University of Pennsylvania. Let's welcome Ben, Dr. Ben Ruder. Greg, thanks for having me on. 
You're very welcome as we attempt this again. <laughs> um, very much excited to speak with you. Always trying to have uh, as many people in the exercise world and, you know, sporting world to really help with specifically soccer athletes, but also just from a standpoint of physical wellness, especially during these, you know, very difficult times. Yeah, I agree. I think we were chatting a little bit before we started recording. I'm starting week eight or week nine. It kind of loses track of the stay at home. And that's, uh, that's longer than I think anybody anticipated, but hopefully the end or at least a slight relaxation with people staying safe is within sight. Yeah, fingers crossed with all that and definitely reached a new level of uh, insanity with all of this. But, you know, trying to still find ways to be productive and stay healthy through all this. So exciting to talk to you about some of that as well. But let's move forward and really just want you to introduce yourself, kind of provide some background on your experience within the exercise world. Sure. I know you're working as a soccer coach now, so you'll appreciate this. I am a former Division Three junior varsity soccer player, which for very your nice. listeners who don't know, that means I wasn't very good at soccer. <laughs> and one of the things when I was at a... At school, I knew that, okay, I'm not very good. Maybe if I get stronger, and that's how I became interested in the National Strength and Conditioning Association, uh, it just lucked out that my first work-study job in college was, was in the athletic training room, and so I gravitated towards majoring in athletic training, worked as an athletic trainer for almost three years, and realized that I wanted to have some semblance of a life outside of work. I think the first week year out of grad school, I worked 48 out of 52 weekends, including the uh, normal work week. And I realized that that probably wasn't conducive for my long-term mental health. And I ended up getting a doctorate. So I guess you could say now I currently teach. I do a little personal training on the side. I do a little podcasting. Uh, so you could define me as a pseudo-Renaissance man. I dabble in a lot of things, but I wouldn't say that I excel in, in many things. And I just have an innate curiosity when it comes to movement and wellness and health. Now, that's that's incredible. And I think it's inc it's really special that you're someone who recognize that you're passionate about a certain field, but it wasn't exactly what you wanted. And then you found ways to adapt and continue to grow as a professional. And now you have basically everything you could possibly imagine within that field, which is really, really cool. Well, I think a lot of it is having the curiosity, as you said. And the other thing is always being able to realize that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And there's just so many people out there. I think you've probably seen this with your podcasting. What I've been shocked with uh, just across my career is the number of people who are willing to give you a little bit of time. And the people who seem to be most likely to do that are those people you'd think, well, there's no way in the world that person will take time to talk to me. You know, they're too important. And you reach out and you contact them and you're just shocked. It's like, wow, they, they do. And they sometimes become either your mentors or in some cases, good friends. Yeah, it's this is, you know, I'm not. How long have you been doing your podcast for? Uh, two of them. Uh, one of them about three years. Yeah. Yeah, so this is only month, you know, going into month three for me with this podcast. And I've only had a few people that I've spoken with on here, but it is very, it's been very special to see the people that have responded and who are willing to commit to their time to, you know, speak to someone who's just putting in, you know, the beginning levels of this. But 
uh, it, I'm excited to see where this continues to go with, you know, just continue to grow the knowledge base and speak to some really interesting people like yourself. So I'd love to kind of unpack, you know, a lot more within the field for yourself and, you know, where, where you're currently at within the field outside of teaching and kind of what your, your main passion is within exercise, movement, and wellness. Sure. I would say outside the teaching, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the things I do on the side is I do a little bit of personal training because I firmly believe that if you're going to teach, you ought to be a practitioner. Um, I think I also mentioned I'm quite active in the National Strength and Conditioning Association. I'm an associate editor-in-chief for the Strength and Conditioning Journal, and I'm very active in the uh, sports medicine and rehabilitation special interest group. And I think that probably is linked to what you said, uh, being passionate about something and realizing maybe your chosen career path isn't exactly going where you want it to be. So you switch it up a little bit. And by being involved in the NSCA, I'm able to still be involved in the rehabilitation and work in that aspect as well as the teaching. Um, and then the third thing, I guess you could say, and what really interests me, and it actually, the more I see, the more it plays in, is the two podcasts that I have that have the ethos, movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. And I think the interesting thing that I realized probably just before I started them sometime in 2015 or 2016 is whether you're a coach, whether you're a physical therapist, whether you're a physical medicine doctor, whether you're a wellness coach across the spectrum of movement, a personal trainer, at the end of the day, any of us who are involved in the fields, what we want is we want our clients, patients, or athletes to either move more or in the case of working with athletes to move better, whether that's allowing them to uh, identify and correct movement impairments or improper ways of moving or just improve their fitness level. So it sounds simple, but it's actually much more complicated if you actually break it down. But the, the whole idea is I want to promote movement as a lifestyle so people are able to do it, whether they're young soccer players or I think I just saw a blog post. There's a guy who's 91 who just set a world record in cycling a couple months ago. So I've as I noted to a couple of my friends, I've got forty uh, some years before to set a world record. <laughs> hey, it's something to put. You know, there's a lot of free time right now to be training for something like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, with this idea of movement being, you know, a huge part of your philosophy, you now let's focus mainly on just overall wellness first. But what are the kind of the most important movements that everyone should be doing from a wellness perspective? I think the most important thing I know, I know you've got the background also. We've all, we all know the American College of Sports Medicine recommendations of the amount of cardiovascular exercise, the amount of strength and conditioning. Um, if you're fortunate enough to work with athletes, you know, in many instances, if they're, for example, soccer athletes, they're probably doing above and beyond that on the cardiovascular aspect, just from daily practices in addition to any other conditioning that they do. And depending on the program they're in, their resistance training may be there. But if you look at just the general college student, the general high school student, the general adult, you know, only about 25% of us move on a regular basis. So I think the most important thing is just to move. That's the starting point. So rather than where 
I guess we're in May, so it's not it's a it's a little bit in 2020, but you know the beginning beginning of the year is always the time when health clubs are very very crowded. Um, people people set goals. You know, I'm going to run that spring marathon, or I'm going to run that spring 5K, or this is going to be the year that I'm going to make make my basketball team. And then about three or four weeks in, it kind of dies out. So I think one of the things that we've done a poor job for people who aren't involved in athletics or people who uh, and I would say it's probably a, a poor job for people who are involved in athletics and the support aspect as coaches, as trainers, as strength coaches, is the emphasis of movement as a lifestyle. You may not get a workout in every day, but you can get a general sense of movement or a general amount of movement in every day, just in your everyday life by making conscious decisions, you know, decisions such as, I mean, now, now it sounds rather silly to say this, but, you know, Parking at the at the uh, far corner of the grocery store and, and taking the long way around—it sounds a little silly now. Um, <laughs> I know I know here in uh, Pennsylvania the, the malls are still closed, but one of the aspects of that, and I I think uh, it's really hit home with me. I've uh, interviewed a couple of people for moving to live. One of them is a track and cross country coach at my institution, uh, Daniel Caulfield, and Daniel was a elite level eight hundred meter runner. Um, you know, he, he did, uh, I may have his time off, but he ran significantly under one minute and 45 seconds for 800 meters, which for anybody who doesn't know anything about track is screaming fast, even though he'll underplay it. Um, and, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, do you run now? Do you, what do you do? He goes, no, but he goes, you know, I, I move around. I've got a kid, uh, a young girl that I do that. I mean, when I'm a tracker cross country class, excuse me, not class tracker cross country practice, you know, I may run, run from one side of the infield to the other side of the infield, you know, 30, 40 times to give splits and things. So he may not be doing a quote unquote organized workout, but he's still very, very active. And I think we lose sight of the fact that, especially if we're in organized athletics, you know, the players, they do that. They get they get their workouts in, but the majority of us don't. And we know that moving can have a huge physical benefit, but also even as important or even more important, it can have a psychological or a mental benefit also. Yeah. So it's it's almost just trying to find out, you know, what's the best, you know, what works best for you. So like for me, I I hate running. I can't I don't I can't run more than a mile without my body feeling like it's going to fall apart. But I could play soccer for about, you know, the entire day without feeling any issues in my body. And the next day, something will be pulled or whatever. But uh, so I think kind of what you're saying is try and figure out from, you know, a sports specific, age specific and just, you know, body specific, what kind of works best for you in this movement process? I think that's yeah. I mean, we're you know, in the middle of social distancing, et cetera. And so many people's lives are in uproar, forget the financial implications, but just from the movement, if they regularly get together with friends to play pickup soccer, to, to run, to, to go to the gym. And I think one of the positive take-home messages that if people are thinking about it from this whole scenario is what are the one or two movement type things that you can do no matter what, and that you enjoy? Because, you know, you say, I don't like to run. Well, if you set yourself a goal of say, okay, I'm going to run three days a week and that's going to be my movement just for wellness, then inevitably you're going to come up with a variety of excuses not to do it because you don't like to do that. 
On the other hand, if you set it up and say, I'm going to do something where I'm going to play short-sided soccer three times a week. And if they're not, you know, if my friends don't want to play short-sided soccer, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do soccer drills and juggling and, and other things like that. You're more likely to be successful. Um, I'm somebody who the idea of going into a gym and lifting weights or getting on the treadmill or something like that is just absolutely horrifying, not horrifying. Is <laughs> Horrifying is a bad word. I don't enjoy it. I do it. I, I, uh, I do the indoor stuff so that I can do the outdoor stuff that I like to do. So what I've done over time, and this is just, I don't know if I've done it subconsciously or if I've done it because I've had injuries in the past where I haven't been able to move for a number of months at a time. But like I have go-to things, you know, I have kettlebells sitting in my backyard where I can do kettlebell swings. I don't mind doing that outside. Um, I have two dogs. So if I don't take my dogs out and walk with them uh, three or four miles, at least five days a week, it's going to be a pretty unhappy household because they're going to be tearing it apart. Uh, they're, they're both Labradors. So right there, just with the walking of the dogs, it gives me a set amount of movement each week just to kind of, that's my baseline. If, if everything else goes, goes to heck or goes to hell and I can't get out for a bike ride, I can't get out for a run, I can't do, do some hiking, I've got that amount of activity. I've got four or five hours in, which seems to be my magic sweet spot. It may be a little bit more for you. It may be a little bit less for somebody else. Um, the other thing that I, that I found that's really, really beneficial, and I didn't really realize this until I wasn't able to exercise because of injuries for a couple of months, it's a great stress reliever and a great way when you find your activity uh, to kind of just let things percolate in the back of your brain. Some of my best ideas have come when I'm out walking my dogs or riding my bike or hiking in the woods. You may not get that when you play soccer, but you may find afterwards because you've relieved some of your stress, both physical and psychological, it's easier to think about things. Something that seemed, a, you know, a work thing that seemed insurpassable. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, here's a couple of workarounds about it. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Find one or two things that you enjoy, that you can do, that are easy to do, and then you can build on it from there. Those are kind of your baseline, kind of like, you know, you eat your vegetables before you eat the good stuff, unless you like vegetables. But, you know, you eat your vegetables, kind of if you have kids, eat your vegetables before you have your dessert. So you just kind of have some basic movement that you can do. And if you got that or have that down pat, then I think the next thing to do is to talk to somebody who's a professional like me. And then you can say, okay, how can we tweak this? So we add in a little bit of resistance training or a little bit of the things that maybe you don't like to do as much. But if you do those, that'll enable you to play that, those uh, soccer games and not wake up the next morning and say, oh my God, what did I do to myself? <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, this is great. And I think, you know, there's so many, there's so many things out there that say you have to do it this way to be able to be, you know, the elite performer, but everyone's so different. Everyone's body reacts differently to different stimuli. And it's, you know, it should be a, a bit of a, you know, experiment for yourself to really figure out what's best. So I'm glad that we're on the same page with that. We're also on the same page with two, having two dogs being absolutely insane. If you can't, can't get, get them outside, I have two myself and they, get very stir crazy if you don't take them out for a lot of running, <laughs> uh, which is a good motivator. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a key motivator. And I found, especially when the weather is bad, when you're going, yeah, I don't want to go outside today. They want to go out. And then after you're out and you get wet or you get snow on, you go, it's not really that bad. It's actually kind of nice out. 
yeah, so it's refreshing. Uh, today is thunderstorming, so maybe not today, but <laughs> definitely a good motivator to get you out. And, you know, you've been talking a little bit about the, you know, the mental side of, of exercise and movement from a, a stance of, you know, stress relief, but also from a stance of, you know, goal setting and actually using it as a way to you know, p- provide motivation and other, other pieces of a mental side of performance. So what's been your experience with using cognitive or mental training within either the recovery process, strength training, or just, you know, baseline wellness training? I think most of my experience has been more along with the recovery process. And I've had the the good fortune on, on my podcast to interview a sleep researcher who's talked about it, uh, Ian Dunican out of Australia, and also a gentleman who worked with uh, Ohio State Wrestling, Don Moxley, as a sports scientist. And I think there's so much in performance where the theory is or the thought is or everybody. And when I say everybody, I'm just you know, just, uh, when you read quickly is harder is better, more is better, faster is better. And what happens is, uh, people forget that where performance improvement comes is when you recover. So using the mental aspect, whether it's using equipment like Omega wave, whether it's using a meditation, whether it's as a team doing a, a Tai Chi class or a meditation class, or if it's appropriately designed a yoga cat class can kind of re- relieve some of the stresses because especially unless we're working with professional athletes, you know, they've probably got boyfriend, girlfriend problems uh, or stresses good or bad, because remember stress can be good and bad. Um, Maybe they don't get along with certain teammates. Maybe they're worried about, are they going to start? Are they going to lose their starting position? If they're college students or high school students or middle school students, you know, you have all the encompasses of social life of college, high school, middle school students and the academic aspect too. So I think mentally for recovery, having something that allows people to realize that I don't have to be go, go, go all the time can be extremely beneficial for not only recovery, but also preparing them for the next training session. Yeah, this is a big, this is a big topic that I've seen a lot in the college ranks with athletes. Uh, and it, you know, ties into their thought process of, you know, being a high performer in the classroom and on the, on the soccer field or whatever sport they're playing. And so like I've had players who are staying up until two, three in the morning doing homework, getting only, you know, four or five hours of sleep and then playing absolutely terribly at practice or in a game and being like, I don't know why I'm, you know, why I'm playing this bad. And so it kind of gets me to this thought of how how can you sell the thought process of recovering and sleep especially and making sure that's a priority for for people in the college uh, athletics that, that's that's a great question and I think that's something as you noted it's become more popular or people have been more become more cognizant of it in the last few years. Uh, I know there's been a study that's linked a lack of sleep to injuries in college athletes. And I think one of the things that there's always a tendency to do, whether it's in training, physical performance, uh, recovery, is we want to overcomplicate things. So, you know, you want to you want to tell your athletes everything you know so you can convince them that you're right and they're going to follow exactly what you say. And sometimes 
slash most of the time that's going to backfire and they're just going to tune you out because it's like it's too much information. So maybe you figure out with with some of your players and and this is with the team, it turns into a culture where it's the expectation, you know, it's the expectation that, you know, recovery is as important in the training. Maybe you figure out, okay, what do we do? Maybe it just starts out in preseason where, you know, you met you, you bring somebody in to talk briefly, you know, here's why sleep is important. You know, you give them, you kind of give them the little bit, here's why it's important. And then maybe you can convince them with one of these uh, sleep apps that's out there. All of us have smartphones. Most college students have smartphones. You know, there's a number of uh, apps out there that will measure sleep. They're not as good as, uh, as being in a sleep lab or one of the even better things. And you probably have some of your athletes do this is resting heart rate. When they get up in the morning, you can go a little bit more with that with some of the the uh, apps. And I think one of the the great things about it, there's a couple out there. One of them that I use is the Elite HRV app. Um, you can buy a little device that goes with it, or you can use the app for free with a forty dollar chest strap, and you can measure your heart rate variability every morning. And it can give you a good idea over time what are the things that are going to reduce your quality of sleep or reduce your readiness the next day, what are the things that are positive? And a a great example of of this is I've got one of my clients who's an engineer and he's kind of dropped down the rabbit hole with me as far as monitoring our sleep and what can we do to manipulate it to make it better. And one of the things that he said, it's pretty much worth an extra 45 to 50 minutes of sleep as far as the way he measures it or what he looks at, if he spends 10 or 15 minutes doing some sort of gentle stretching or mobility work before he goes to bed. So rather than finishing up watching TV, uh, whether reading, whatever it is coming, coming in from being out at a play with his wife, if he spends 10 or 15 minutes doing some sort of gentle motion, gentle mobility, and then goes to sleep, it's kind of acts as a time period. It's a, it's a down stressor and he goes to sleep better. So, to kind of go back to how can you get your athletes to do it, kind of give them the information in, in a digestible form that, hey, here's why sleep is important. And then maybe you say to them, hey, you know, for the next 10 days, spend uh, that uh, post-practice stretching that we do. Try to do that again before you go to bed and just see how you feel. And I suspect what you'll find as you start to do these little things and just like finding out the right movement for people to do so they always are moving, finding the right cue for each person is going to be different. Some people are going to say, I don't want to do that. I'd rather do 10 minutes of deep breathing or controlled breathing. But finding something that makes them aware is a starting point. And the good news is once you find that thing, it's pretty easy to get somebody to buy into it. The bad news is Sometimes it takes a while to find something for them to buy into. So you may have, you know, half of your team may say, boy, that, that deep breathing, I really see that it helps my, my, my sleep quality, or I, I don't feel as stressed when I wake up in the morning. On the other hand, you may have the other half that says, man, my roommate picks on me and teases me when I do the deep breathing. Maybe they're the people who get down on the floor with a foam roller or do, you know, a gentle 10 or 15 minute yoga routine. So it's kind of, what are we trying to do? And then don't be afraid to try a number of different things, keeping them in small digestible doses, because let's face it, if they're a college student, the last thing they can do is build in 35, 40, 45 minutes more of something in their life. Yeah, the the 
The idea of keeping it very short, keeping it very simple, I think that is very important for selling it to these, you know, college-age kids. Uh, if they are, you know, high-performing athletes, I think most of them will tie pretty quickly into that. Uh, they'll see that as something that's valuable, but as long as you're keeping it short, I think that's what's really important. Uh, and then you also talk about this idea of heart rate variability, which I think is really interesting because... Uh, you know, I did a lot of work with the military for a year doing heart rate variability training and sleep training and all of this idea to help them be, you know, better performers out in high stress situations. And a lot of the times it's trying to help them just get better quality in their sleep or better quality in their training to help with this heart rate variability instead of providing more time because, you know, as a college athlete, as a you know soldier, you're not going to really be able to get more hours of sleep, but at least you can find ways to have better quality of sleep. So adding this 10, 15 minute of stretching right before you go to bed sounds like a really good way to get that quality improvement, maybe not time wise. And I, I would agree with that. I would say the other thing that's very easy to request, some people will buy into it uh, better than others is look 45 minutes before you go to get bed, put the phone and the iPad up and the computer up because that blue light is going to have an effect on your ability to fall asleep. As you know, I, I had an interview a couple of years ago where I, I talked with a sleep researcher and I was convinced, I mean, I was tracking my sleep and doing things. I was convinced, Oh, I, you know, I can use my iPad to read. It doesn't have an effect on me. And after doing this interview and doing a little bit of research on my own, it's like, well, let's see what happens. And I stopped using my iPad and all of a sudden, I found that I would go to bed, I would read a paper book for 10 or 15 minutes, I would close the book, turn the lights off, and I wouldn't remember going to sleep. So people who are saying all that stimulus uh, doesn't have an effect on me or all the, uh, the, blue white, the blue light has no effect on me, well, it does. So get off the phone 45 minutes, an hour before bed, or if you're not going to get off the phone, get a set of those blue blue light blocking glasses. So maybe you can reduce the amount of blue light that you're exposing yourself to just before you're trying to sleep. It blows my mind when people say, oh, it won't affect me. Like there's so many research articles out there. There's so much information out there now that you aren't, you're on as special as you think you are. <laughs> that's, that's, a, I'm, and I remember talking, talking to somebody afterwards, like, yeah, I didn't think it affected me. And guess what? I'm just like everybody else. And now yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I go to bed relatively early and I get up relatively early because my productive time is early in the morning. But, you know, now it's like I'm even two or three hours, I'm off the computer two or three hours before I go to bed just because I recognize it. It makes a difference. And yeah. when I'm not, it's like, it's almost set in my mind. I know I'm not going to fall asleep as easily. I know I'm not going to feel as rested. And I think I think one of the things with uh, with teams, especially in the collegiate setting, is, is you set, you set a uh, an environment, or just this is like this is the way the team does it. You know, there's there's certain teams like I know some people hate Duke and some people like Duke, but you always know when, when Duke basketball is going to play defense, somebody's going to slam the floor with their hands, mm -hmm. and it's kind of built into the team culture. And if it's built into the team culture and it starts and it may take a year or two, then it's like, oh, well, this is just the way we do it. It helps with recovery. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you're hitting it really, really good on the head about the culture and building the right type of culture. And that's a big part of my own coaching philosophy. You know, high level coaches, high level teams, they have a certain philosophical approach values that they're using. And if you can embed this recovery value and into your culture, it's just going to help your individual and team collective performance so much. I I really appreciate that sentiment for sure. Um, Would love to kind of now transition a little bit, go a a little bit more specific now into soccer um, and really get your perspective on how soccer players should be training and kind of hitting all pieces here of from a strength and conditioning piece from a uh, athletic training side and from just an overall recovery process for a soccer player to be an elite performer. Sure. I I think the first thing that's that we need to address and it's something in team sports that hasn't been addressed really well is different athletes are able to withstand different training loads. I know there's a Soviet uh, researcher, I I can't recall his name, but he talks about uh, people being either bears or I think it's tigers. And the bears are the people that you can just load the training up on them. They can do lots of training. You know, you want them to run more, have them run more. You want them to spend more time out on the practice pitch, they can do it. And they're going to come back the next day and say, give me more coach, give me more. They're going to recover from that. On the other hand, there's some people who are the tigers. You know, they can do a lot of high intensity stuff, but if you try to load them up with a huge amount of volume, they're just going to break down and they're not going to be good because they can't recover. And that's just physiologically some people it's, it's similar in any sport. You know, some people, uh, you know, some runners can go out and run a hundred miles a week. And it's like, this is great. Other people Other runners, you know, you get them over 50 miles a week and they start to break down. So I think the difficulty you have with a team, unless you can really individualize their training, which is difficult to do because it is a team game, is recognize that, look, there's going to be sometimes with some things. And if you have the proper team culture as possible, where there's going to be some athletes just like, look, this just isn't for you, you know, or you need to take it easier. Why don't you go home today? So that's something that I think as we see the training of elite athletes and the recognition that everybody responds similarly physiologically, but everybody is different physiologically, that's something I think we're going to see really change or really be looked at as far as what can we do to make sure that each athlete is getting the proper amount of training load where they can recover, where they can get better, and where they can play within the team environment. Um, throwing, not throwing that out, but, you know, thinking about that and then building it in, I think the first thing to think about with soccer players or any other athletes, uh, especially at the high school and college setting, even at the, even at the elite setting is recognize that for most athletes, if they're, if they're at the pretty high level, they're going to be pretty well motivated. They're going to want to do more. They're going to want to do additional training. And as people who are control people, whether coaches, strength coaches, athletic trainers, people who are working with them to make them better, excuse me, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is it's not just what we do. It's what the other coaches and trainers are doing 
and the stresses going on outside their life. So all of the stresses build up. And even if you have the best designed training program for them for resistance training, to develop their soccer skills, to develop their cardiovascular skills, if they're sleeping in a bad situation where there's lots and lots of noise, if they're in a really bad relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend, if they're fighting with their parents, then our hardest part is going to be to prevent them from breaking down because they're going around stressed, stressed, stressed all the time. And I think that may not be exactly what you are looking for as the start of the answer, but I think it's incredibly important to recognize that if people are under stress all the time, they're never going to be able to optimize the performance. Right. So it's maybe it's not about what you're doing. It's more about the the coach or the trainer uh, or the doctor understanding what the person is doing outside of the sport to really gather as much information to really provide best practices for them. I think I think that's yes. You've stated it better than me. And that that go that goes back to doing something with HRV or something else. And I mean, on the one hand, you have people saying, "Well, I don't want the coaches and the trainers looking at, at what my sleep quality is." You know, that's my personal space. Yeah, and that's I mean, that's an argument and that's a consideration. But you know, one of the one of the things that if you have a really good relationship with your athletes, not just as I'm your coach, but I'm you know, this is a partnership. We're working together to make you better, you know, and you see that, uh, man, Greg's got a, a, a sleep score that's really low or his HR, his HRV is low. And you say, Hey, you know, Greg, I've noticed your HRV has been low the last couple of days. You know, well, what's going on? It's like, Oh, I've got this really hard chemistry class and I'm, I'm struggling in it. Or yeah, I've been fighting with my girlfriend. So I, I think recognizing all the encompassing stress is, is important before you even start saying, okay, what's the optimal training for each athlete? And I think one of the things that often is done with strength coaches um, and performance coaches with team sport athletes is if you work with a soccer player, you know, the, the question has to be asked, what's my goal? Ultimately, my goal is to make him or her a better soccer player. Um, you know, if I'm working with a basketball player, I want to make him or her a better basketball player. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to forget that because it's like, oh man, you know, I, I want them to do this, 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 and this. And going back a little, you know, we, we have a tendency to lose ourselves and, and think that our training is the most important, whether the, we're the strength coach, the soccer coach, the person doing the rehab. And I think ultimately we all need to work as a team and remember like, look, our goal is to take this individual soccer player, make them a better soccer player. And it may mean we're not doing everything as much as we want to do. You know, we're looking at it and saying, man, I really had them plan to do this workout today. Well, what we're seeing is from all the other things that are going on, maybe that's not the right workout. So I guess... In addition to looking at all the stresses, the second thing would be to realize as a coach, as a strength coach, as, as a skills coach, if, if they've got a skills coach outside of the outside of the team that they work with in the summer, um, they all have to be on the same page. Because if you're saying, uh, you know, every day when we finish when we finish soccer practice, we're doing a and I'm saying this in air quotes, a 30 minute recovery run. And then at six o'clock the next morning, they show up at the strength room and they start out doing high intensity stuff. It just isn't going to work. 
But if you're communicating with the strength coach, then very often you can work together and collaboratively, you can develop a program that's going to make not only the individual players better, but the players are going to understand what's going on. And that takes a little bit of not having an ego, you know, yeah. the, the, the best coaches are the ones who just sit there and watch. And I, I, I remember, uh, seeing a YouTube video, um, there are a variety of, of major division ones, uh, basketball coaches who just open up their practices at various times of the year and say, you want to come watch my practice? That's fine. You know, because I think, I think what it is, is people are always afraid that, oh, you know, somebody's going to steal, you know, coach Greg is going to steal my drill or, or this, this person's going to steal my conditioning program. What makes your program unique is you. Um, I, I know, uh, I was at a cross country, uh, high school cross country clinic for coaches. And there was a coach from California who said, I'll give it, I'll give any coach all of my workouts. You can see what I do with my athletes day to day, but it's not going to help you because it's for my athletes. And I understand working with them that even though this is what the program says, it may not be the same day to day. So I guess to summarize it in, in three things is, first of all, be aware of the outside stresses that your athletes are under and recognizing that that has an effect on the training that you can or can't do. Be willing to, uh, to work collaboratively with other people who are involved with it, the coaches, the athletic trainers, the skills coaches, the strength coaches. And a lot of times, let's face it, with mom and dad, because mom and dad may have an opinion of this is this is what my son or daughter should be doing. And then the final thing is be willing to put your ego aside, because at the end of the day, if the athlete is better, even if they're not saying, oh, wow, you know, Greg made me better. You're going to get you're going to get the credit that you deserve for what you did. Maybe not then, but down the line, people are going to recognize that's the coach I want my athletes to play for. That's the person I want to be around my athletes because they have a positive effect on them. Yeah, and I think that comes back to your point on culture. If if you're leading that culture charge with getting out of your own way and providing the best value for the people that you are coaching or working with, then success will come, growth will come, and then the better players in the long run will end up coming to you as well. So I think that's a really good way to think about uh, just building that culture in a way that helps yourself succeed, but also the people around you succeed as well. I, I think that's well put. I, th I think the other thing we, we need to remember too, I mean, obviously at the elite level, it still has to be to some extent fun. It can't be grind, grind, grind all the time. And, and I, and I know that, uh, if, if athletes know that there's some fun involved with it, you know, sometimes things suck. They aren't, they aren't fun to do, but the overall picture should, it should be fun. It should be over the overall process should be enjoy enjoyable. It shouldn't be, you know, we're, we're uh, right in the middle of watching the last dance. And if you see some of the interviews with Michael Jordan, you know, you can just tell it's not fun because it's just, there's so much stress on him. Yeah. Yeah, this last episode, last two episodes where he's getting really emotional with the fact that he was doing this all to, you know, compete at his high level, but also try and bring that competition up with the people around him. It's, you know, that 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 thought of like was it fun? Was it, you know, great for everybody around them, but then you look at the celebrations and the passion that comes out of it. So, it's it's hard to 
to say that it maybe in his in his eyes it was fun because he just loved that competition factor. Yeah, I mean what I what I'm taking home from that is he loved the competition factor. What really caused the burnout was the extraneous stresses, you know, the press constantly yeah. asking him things, the the front office uh, basically saying, yeah, well, the reason we're so good is it's it's the it's the culture a culture of the club. It's not necessarily the players. So I think I think you're right. I think he. I mean, I don't know him obviously, but I think you know he loves the competition. You can see the playing of cards, the the competing with with the clubhouse people, with with the throwing of quarters yeah. a couple of episodes ago. You know, he loves the competition. It was all that extraneous crap that it, that I think probably got old. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before I lose my train of thought here, though, you talked a little bit about you know tracking HRV. Uh, have you seen any? really good technology that's good for tracking this biofeedback information during practices and then also any apps or anything for like weekly questionnaires to ask them about you know sleep quality or outside stresses or anything i have not seen during practice i know before practice and after practice if you have the budget for it omega wave is really good um it's expensive that's the that's the problem uh, I think as far as for tracking, uh, the two things that I really like, I like the Elite HRV app. I actually use the little device with it, the Core Sense, but my girlfriend uses the uh, the chest strap. You, you can buy any uh, chest strap that has Bluetooth. And it's very easy to measure it in the morning. The app gives you information. There's actually The app is free. Um, you can do a paid version where, you, where as a coach, you can monitor what it is. Um, what I also like about the app and I'm not getting any money for it since it's free, but I've, I've been using it myself for over two years is there are, uh, built into the app you can, and they're actually going to be supposedly in the next week or so coming out with an updated version of the app, but there are, uh, skills built into the app skills probably isn't the right word. For example, to spend three minutes doing deep breathing or doing relaxation things. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. Or and there's a couple of other apps out similar to that. And the reason I like that is it puts the onus of control in the athlete. You know, maybe maybe you've got uh, an athlete who they get stressed before they come to practice. You know, f- for whatever reason. And I, I mean, I think some stress is normal, but you know, they get to distress where they it affects their performance. You know, maybe this is something where they downregulate themselves or they actually have to calm themselves rather than excite themselves before practice. Something like this device will not only give them the tool because it's telling them it's it's allowing them to watch the watch the app or watch the device to say when to inhale and exhale. But if they're using it with the chest strap, they can see, oh, it dropped my heart rate. It lengthened my HRV or, or brought my HRV up. So I'm a huge fan of that. Um the other thing that I'm a big fan of, and depending on the athlete, it uh, it may or may not be within the budget. I'm a big fan of the Aura Ring, which is a ring that measures sleep. Uh, I think most researchers will tell you, and from what I've seen, I would agree, the app shows the amount of the different phases of sleep that you have. That's probably, maybe, uh, don't bet the ranch on it. <laughs> <laughs> But it can give you a pretty good insight as far as how much sleep you're getting. It also measures HRV. It shows uh, what your body temp- temperature was while you were sleeping. 
And again, within the app, you can track it and you can say, oh, well, it was noisy last night. That affected my sleep quality. So I'm, I'm a big fan of those two apps uh, or those two devices, the Aura Ring and the, the Elite HRV. I, I think both of those are tools. I do want to say uh, with a caveat with them is, again, know your athletes because some, somebody like like me, uh, I'm a gadget freak. It's like to be able to go back and look at, look at it and see, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Like I know if I have more than one glass of wine, it's going to affect my sleep quality. I don't look at that as a negative thing. I look at it as like, oh, that's pretty cool. So now I only have one glass of wine if I'm going to have a glass of wine, whereas six months ago, I might have had two glasses of wine. Um, but recognize that for some athletes, that tracking can be a stressor also. So again, it's a know your athlete. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've got somebody who says, you know, oh my God, I know I didn't sleep well, or if I don't fall asleep, it's going to give me a bad sleep score. That can be another stressor. So I like those apps, but again, it comes back to all of these things that we talk about are tools. And even though everybody follows basic physiological principles, everybody is also different. You can't say, well, this works for all my other athletes. Why doesn't it work for you? You know, everybody is an individual. Yeah, I think the big the big takeaway from all this is it's really anybody who says there's like this cookie cutter way to be, you know, an elite performer is, you know, selling a lot of fraud because everyone is so individually specific in how you can become your best self that it really does take a lot of experimentation, which I know a lot of people won't like to hear because they want that quick fix. But it is really an experiment to really figure out what works best for you uh, to really be your best. And, and it really, it can change, you know, so if you're talking about college students, you know, it can change from semester to semester, depending on what their classes are, you know, depending on, on what the roommate situation is. I think one of the things that really drove this home for me is uh, a little bit over a year ago, I lost one of my dogs. She had uh, idiopathic epilepsy for four years. And I knew for four years, my sleep quality sucked because she'd turn over in the middle of the night and you know, 30% of the time she'd be turning over and going into a seizure. So any sort of noise, I'd like go bolt up right in bed. Mm -hmm. Um, would, would still, would still have, would still not give it up for anything, but you know, I lost her because of complications. And one of the things I noticed was within two or three weeks, my sleep quality improved. Um, my other dog, and then I've since gotten another dog because you have to have two, as you know. Um, but you know, now when they turn over, turn over at night, it's like, I may wake up if they're shaking. But there's not that fight or flight, that stress where that, that where's that there's that feeling in, in my stomach and my heart's racing. It's like, oh my God, she's having a seizure. Yeah. So I I, I think uh, you know, the recognizing that this is a fluid state when you say you, you're right, there is no cookie cutter. And what works for your athlete, you know, when she when she's a freshman or a sophomore may not work when she's a senior, where she may be a you know, an elite college level performer, but she's you know, now she's worried about a job. She's worried about, you know, am I going to get into grad school? Am I going to go play professionally? You know, my life is changing significantly because after being fairly stable for three or four years, now all of a sudden I'm out in the real world. So everybody's different. There is no cookie cutter and it's fluid. What works now for an athlete may not work next year or even next semester. Yeah, that's uh, very true. And it's, I think you see that a lot with, you know, players that are, 
you know, right after they leave college and they say, I I could do this when I was in college. I could, you know, play soccer all day. I could then go for a five mile run. I could do this, that, and the other thing. And then, you know, two years out, your, you know, your body's not able to maintain that. And the, you know, the, the stress that comes with that and the, the mental focus that comes with that. Why can't I perform at this level anymore? Now it's about really trying to restructure how you are performing and how you're playing and how you're, uh, you know, getting that wellness once you've left that college kind of environment. So very important always to keep adapting for sure. And yeah. And, and, Sorry, I, and, I, and I think one of the things that across sports that we haven't done a good job at that we're getting better at is, you know, the mental aspect of making the athletes aware of, you know, it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be stressed, but giving them the proper tools to deal with that. You know, the, the, the person, I mean, the person who's got a penalty kick to take, you know, should they be nervous? Yes, they should be nervous. That's a good thing. But they shouldn't be so nervous that they can't control themselves to the extent that it affects their accuracy of the shot. And for some people, it, I think it's just built in innately. It's like, boy, you know, maybe maybe Michael Jordan was one of these people or maybe he had coaches who worked with him who developed this where it's like, oh, boy, I, I like this. I want the last shot. Maybe somebody else doesn't have that innateness built in. But I think with uh, proper training and uh, – you know, proper coaching, they can become that person because it it is, it's a learn still to be able to control your stress. Yeah. This is your tying right into a big philosophical approach that I have from a sports psychology perspective. Uh, this is something that one of my mentors, when I was working with the military, uh, he had really kind of grown him and his wife had really grown and were starting to kind of develop their own style. But this idea of, being comfortable under pressure and performing under, you know, not a hundred percent circumstances is possible. And it's very important because in no way, shape or form, can you control how you're feeling? No, no way, shape or form. Can you, um, you know, say, say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be confident and then immediately be confident. It's just not how the mind and the body reacts. So being, successful when you're not a hundred percent bringing up that Michael Jordan example of when he was, I think he had the flu and he had, you know, an IV hooked up to him basically when he was on the sidelines, yet he still dropped, you know, a billion points and helped his team win in the playoffs. It just shows you that there are ways to be successful, even if you're not feeling a hundred percent great that day. I would agree. Absolutely. Uh, tying this again now into, and I'm sure I'm going to get the same kind of answer that it's not, it's different for everybody, uh, but still going to ask it. Uh, what's been your experience with injuries from a soccer perspective, uh, both men and female, male and female, and kind of what's, what's a big part of that recovery process with those trends that you've seen? I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, comment with female soccer players. It's just the tremendous number of anterior cruciate ligament injuries. You know, I, I suspect, uh, you know, it's on any college soccer team. I, I would be surprised if it was less than 
25% of the players had torn an ACL at least once, if not multiple times. Yeah. And, I, and I would not be shocked if in, on some teams it was higher than 50%. You know, and that's 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 scary. I, I know that uh, Cincinnati Orthopedics has done a fair amount of, of research on you know the movement patterns of males and females pre-puberty to post-puberty, and they're big proponents of uh, you know an ACL protocol that starts with youth. It's basically it's uh, you know they say do this as a warm up, whether you're a man or a man or, or, or a woman. And I think you know the best thing with injuries is what can we prevent. You know, if, if somebody gets a cleat stuck, stuck in the turf and the foot doesn't release and, you know, the body weight goes, well, yeah, that's an injury that can happen. If somebody rolls into them, it's unavoidable or, or somebody, you know, runs them over, that's unavoidable. But I think the first thing with injuries is what can we do to prevent them? And, and I think uh, looking at it from a, a physiological standpoint, the, the first thing is, you know, do they have the proper fitness to play? And I think that's that starts... You know, you can get in. Uh, I mean, this is, would be a whole other talk. You know, at what age should should athletes start specializing? And I think you probably agree with me. In many instances, a lot of the players are starting way too young. But you know, right? Having the proper cardiovascular f- fitness to play, I think, is critical so that you can make good decisions um, because you can think better when you're not, uh, when you don't have those tremendously high levels of lactic acid and your heart screaming and maybe that red haze going across your eyes, but also having the appropriate amount of strength to do what the, what the demands are. So I think that's the first thing with injuries is preparing the individuals to be the best physiological condition that they can be. And that comes down to the whole team working collaboratively, the team being the performance team, the coaches, the strength coaches, the athletic trainers. I think the second thing, um, and this is the, this is something that, uh, I think is, is vitally important is throughout the rehab, uh, emphasizing to the athlete. It's like, yeah, you got an injury, but you're going to get better. And, you know, this is, you know, if you're somebody who, tears an ACL. I mean, your, your initial thought is, you know, my career is over. I can't do this. Um, and it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint to get better. And, you know, God forbid if they're unfortunate enough where they tear the other one or they re tear that. So I think the mental training and the constantly reinforcing them is like, look, this is going to take time. It's going to take hard work, but it does recover. I, I think uh, where people have done a really good job uh, overall is 10 or 15 years ago with back injuries. If people herniated a disc, you'd hear the physical therapists and athletic trainers say for the rest of their careers, like, well, you've got a bad back. You've got to be careful. Now they're saying, well, you know, you've herniated a disc or you've got a flare up. Your back is strong. It's going to get better. So I, I think there's a tremendous underemphasis or under recognition of the importance of positive self-talk, you know, set it, setting up micro goals for them. You know, somebody comes out of an ACL surgery, for example, um, you know, a micro goal may be able to just to stand on that leg. So, you know, again, it, it is individualistic, but above all, it's creating a positive environment, you know, creating goals for them. Um, it is hard work to do the rehabilitation from the injuries, but it's also, something that I know a lot of coaches do better than other coaches is make sure they're still part of the team. You know, if they can 
come to practices or parts of practices as opposed to that's when they go to the athletic training room. Then there's that disconnect where it's like, well, I'm a soccer player, but I'm not, I'm not with my, with my friends. I'm not with my teammates because they're out practicing and I'm, uh, you know, I'm in the training room doing rehab. I think, uh, I hate to keep bringing up the last dance, but it's, I think it's on everybody's mind and (laughs) with nothing else going on on television, (laughs) we watch it. But I, I, I believe I, uh, I'm not sure if it was in that or if it was something I read because I Googled afterwards, but one of the things that helped Phil Jackson was he was injured his second year playing. And the coach took him under, under his wing and said, look, I want you to come to all the practices. And he, you know, he gave him a job tracking plays and things like that. So he was part of the team and probably that had a positive effect on him down the line when he went into coaching because he already had a start. Yeah, this is a really big component of the recovery process that I think is not hit on a lot in the idea of One, you speak of the verbiage that's being used by the trainers and by the doctors and by the coaches to help keep the players in a very positive mindset as much as possible, but then also then providing them opportunities to still be a part of something bigger than themselves so that they always know, okay, I'm still a part of this team and when I come back, I will be ready both physically, but I will also have all of the information that the team has from a tactical standpoint, from a technical standpoint, and now even potentially from a coaching standpoint, that's so valuable. I think that's something that needs to be really harped on in the recovery process, you know, no matter what sport you're playing. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, that we should comment on or address is, you know, sometimes it's a time the people who are working with the rehab, you know, if, if you're at a smaller school and there's one athletic trainer and you've got men's soccer, women's soccer, football, field hockey, volleyball going on, sometimes it's difficult to figure out how can I spend enough time with this one athlete? And, you know, rehabbing from an ankle sprain is a little bit different uh, psychologically than, than uh, working with an athlete who's looking at, you know, six months, eight months, a year, a year and a half, if it's a major knee injury or some of these other injuries. And I, you know, there's not a magic answer, but I think that's something, you know, that's caught that, that we need to be cognizant of and figure out, you know, what are ways that we can recognize, again, this is kind of individualizing it. Some people, some injuries, it takes more time to give them all the tools to be successful. Yeah. So this, this brings me to a thought and something that my fiance, who's also an athletic trainer, and I have been kind of arguing about a little bit is, you know, from a, from a coverage standpoint, if the fall doesn't happen and we can't play sports in the fall, would there even be an opportunity for, say, like soccer? I think it's unrealistic for football to do this, but let's say soccer and some of those other fall sports to be able to play their seasons in the spring in conjunction with baseball and all of those other spring sports. Do you think coverage wise athletic trainers would be able to do that at a college level? If they're not going to increase their, uh, the number of athletic trainers that they have, in other words, if they're not going to bring in other athletic trainers, maybe not as full-time positions, but as contract positions, I don't think so. But I could see it where if they collaborated with a local clinic and, and hired, uh, I know 
a variety of high schools often hire athletic trainers on a contract basis to, to come out either for games or for practices. I think it would be possible. I think this is also a good opportunity to just uh, recognize that, you know, we're at uh, spring sports were canceled. Um, depending on the school you're at, there may have been spring practices for the fall sports. Probably the level of fitness of any athlete who's coming back in the summer or the majority of athletes is going to be less than if they were on campus. So I think coaches and strength coaches and athletic trainers need to be cognizant and recognize, you know what, this is going to be a slower process and we may not see athletes who are as skilled or as fit as we think they should be at this time, because there were two, three, four, five months where they did not have access to their normal ways. You know, there, there'll probably be some athletes who will come out much, much stronger, but I think there'll be a significant number of athletes, especially those who really thrive in the team environment, the team workouts, who may be less fit and that puts them at an increased risk for injury. Yeah, I think that's something that is definitely being overlooked or not thought about right now, but I think will be a really big, big con, uh, big talking point once sports do get close to coming back um so what's what's kind of the what should be the focus for a lot of athletes right now in their training with the pandemic and then what should the focus be from coaches to kind of implement maybe a different training regimen once we are back on campus or in the professional ranks I think the the number one focus on that the athletes should have right now and everybody is you know be safe. Um, talked to a was talking with a, a local track and cross country coach, um, and the instructions that they had were you know the sports seasons are over, coaching is over. So he has reached out to his athletes and communicated with them um, on a regular basis. You know just to make sure as, as people, because they're not just athletes to him. They're, his, they're, you know, they're students that he's mentoring. Um, but what I have seen, and I know he's seen it also, is there are a number of coaches who still have their athletes coming together for group workouts, which, uh, you know, there's a park that I go to and I have seen, uh, one local high school with six or seven, uh, runners running together as a group in their team wear. So Can't I think, <laughs> Can't do well, that. Come on. <laughs> you, you, well, you know, I, I thought I was overreacting and I, I talked to him and I didn't mention the school and it turns out there's at least one other school that was doing it. So I think the number one thing is be safe. So once you get to that, then you need to, you know, if you're communicating with your athletes, you know, what sort of equipment do they have access to? And, and by the same token, and this, this would come under the auspices of, especially where you are, you know, what does the NCAA say? And I, this, I don't know, cause I'm not, I'm not coaching, but you know, are you still able to coach your athletes, um, offer feedback, but assess, you know, what is something that, I, that, that most athletes are able to do while staying safe? And I, and I think, you know, there are, resistance training that's possible with suspension trainers, with body weight type things. Um, so that's possible, uh, depending on where they live, uh, cardiovascular training is possible. So you're, you know, you're basically building the platform for a soccer player. Yeah. And then the third thing, I mean, I think this is one of the great things about soccer versus basketball, you know, basketball, you need a hoop. Um, 
you know, you're, uh, and you need a fair amount of space. They could, uh, as a soccer player, work on individual skills in a relatively small area, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. For the, for the most part, there's definitely a lot of ball work that can still be done. There's a lot of, of that technical side of the game that you could do, you know, if you just have a wall or if you just have, you know, a 10 by, not even, if you have like a, th- a three by three space, you could basically do a lot of training. Whereas, you know, from a basketball perspective, you know, all your big men could get really good at dribbling, uh, but yeah, you won't be able to shoot and, you know, take care of that side of the game. But so. I mean, I, mean I, w- I would say that the four things would be number one, be safe. You mm-hmm. know, that's the number two, be able to work on cardio, maintaining cardiovascular fitness. Um, number three, work on resistance training. And within the, that, if you are, uh, if you've already know areas of weakness or areas of imbalance to correct those. And then number four, the, the skill areas. And, you know, it's, it's a lot harder um, if you're not uh, scheduled. It's like, okay, at three o'clock, we have skills practice. At 4.30, we're, we're going to the weight room. Um, at 5.30, we have, a, we have a group run. It's a lot different if you're an individual and some of the athletes will strive at it and some of the athletes won't, which I think gets back to what you and I were talking a few minutes ago is, you know, when they come back, what's their fitness level going to be like? You would, you would like to hope that they're going to go, Oh, I'm going to really show coach. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be safe and I'm going to do my workouts and I'm going to really improve my skills. And you're going to see them knock on wood in in, uh, late summer, early fall. And you're going to go, wow, they're really, really good. But I think we have to be prepared that that's not necessarily going to be the case and to work with what we have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, ben, this has been extremely enlightening. Uh, I really appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to discuss a lot of different areas of wellness and movement. Uh, the final question that I've been asking people is, you know, what are your values in life and how do you really live by those on a daily basis? That's a great question. I would say the number one thing is uh, always be truthful. I think there's shit in the world. Um, and the people who have had the greatest influence on me who ha- have always been very honest with me, even though maybe I sometimes didn't want to hear it. Uh, I think the second thing is, and, and this is kind of a ethos I've, I've lived by. I don't know how I've picked it up, but it's really easy to talk the talk if it doesn't affect you. Yeah. But the people that you really look up to and you admire and you serve as mentors is not only do they talk the talk, but they walk the walk when it, when it impacts them. Um, and so I think, uh, remembering, you know, going back to when I was in college to people just career wise, who've been mentors when I'm doing things career wise, you know, what, what would they think of me doing that? So it even influences me with people that I potentially interview for podcasts because, you know, in the movement and fitness field, as you alluded to earlier in our interview, you know, there are people who say, well, you know, you want to do this. This is the program you have to follow. There's a lot of fly by night and there's a lot of bull. Yeah. So I really pick and choose uh, the people that I want to interview because I want them to be credible. So those people that I admire, those people who I, I guess at some level want to be proud of me. Um, or respect me, aren't going to say, man, what the heck was Ben doing? Who is that person? That person's really out there or is behaving unethically. So I guess be truthful and always uh, try to do something 
uh, or do things that you can look back on it. And, you know, maybe you say, yeah, that was the wrong decision, but you're not saying that was the wrong thing ethically to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely appreciate those, those values. And I think they've led you in a really good path and it's, you know, this has been really incredible speaking with you. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to, to plug anything, your podcast, any social media, anything uh, before we finish this off as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. We've got uh, two podcasts. We've got Fitness Lab Pittsburgh, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H, which if you like uh, things in the Pittsburgh area, you'll like that. But the other thing is if you look it up, that F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H on uh Instagram, you'll be able to see movement tip and lifestyle hack videos three times a week. My other podcast, uh, if you're in the coaching field, is Moving to Live, uh, M-O-V-I-N-G-2-L-I-V-E.com. And what we do is we interview different professionals across the movement field from personal trainers to physicians, find out their story, how they got there, and then uh, just talk about what they do career-wise. So we've had everybody from sleep researchers to performance researchers to physicians. And I mean, the great thing about podcasts like this and, and what Greg's doing is you know, you can pick and choose the people that you you uh, listen to. And if you get one piece of information from one podcast, one from another, and you combine it back into your ethos and what you do, it's all about uh, improving the quality of life, improving the quality of the athletes that you work with. Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'll make sure that all that information is in the show notes, uh, along with my information if you'd like to email the podcast or connect with me on Twitter. But Ben, thank you very much. Uh, stay safe out there and don't let those dogs drive you too crazy. Greg, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. I hope your listeners got something out of it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to another interview episode of the Patterns of Play podcast. Uh, it was really great having Ben on the podcast, and we will potentially have him back in the future. Uh, all of his information, where you can find his podcast, where you can find his social media, will be in the show notes. So if you're looking to get connected with Ben, please check those out. Uh, and Thank you again for listening to this episode and being, uh, you know, an active listener to the podcast. Uh, always incredible to have uh, people like this on to speak about uh, wellness in general, but also performance and tying it into uh, soccer for sure. Uh, but thank you again for listening. Thank you to Ben for coming on uh, and have a great rest of your week.